There's two things we need to do when we're in a time of transition. We need to renew and refresh our core vision. There's a, a temptation when we're in transition to just kind of look at what's right in front of us and uh, narrow our vision or lose the big vision. But in times of transition, in times of uh, challenge, it's especially important to keep the big vision. A few years ago, I went uh, with my son, we went uh, on a sea kayaking adventure. Has anybody ever done a sea kayak? We were in uh, British Columbia, and uh, we were in kind of a wilderness area in British Columbia, and we rented this two-man kayak, this really big kayak that you can go out in the ocean in, and uh, they handed us a topo map and a tide chart. Now, I've done a lot of uh, backcountry hiking. I know, I know from a topo map, that's a map that shows you, you know, you can determine the, uh, the lay of the land from that map. But being from New Mexico, I was not so familiar with tide charts. We don't even have tides in New Mexico. And uh, <clears throat> I really didn't know why they gave it to me. But what I discovered was that we, uh, we needed to know when the tides were coming in and out because trying to, to paddle this kayak against the tide was really a challenge. And uh, we, didn't pay we paid attention to the topo map. We saw this mountain on land and we were headed toward that in the kayak. We, di we didn't know from tide charts. And sure enough, the tide came, uh, let's see what the terminology would be. The tide came in against us. We were, we were rowing against the tide. And uh, we were really being, you know, pushed in all different directions. It was really tough. But the one thing we needed to do in that tough transition, that stormy transition, was to keep our big vision, our eyes on that uh, mountain peak that we were headed toward, and keep it straight. And that's a lesson for us in times of transition. We're tempted to uh, narrow our vision. In fact, that's my second point. We're tempted in times of transition to get tunnel vision. So we need to keep, as believers, as followers of Yeshua, the Messiah, especially when we're in a stressful transitional time, we need to keep the big vision of the kingdom of God. And the bigger that vision is, the better. It's not a, an about me vision. Or put better, it's a not about me vision that we need to keep. We need to avoid tunnel vision. So uh, since I'm an old guy, I can you know, brag about all my outdoor adventures without seeming like I'm bragging, right? So uh, a few years ago, I took up with a friend of mine, rappelling. Rappelling is when you go down uh, a 100-foot cliff on a rope and you're in this harness, and uh, you walk to the edge of the cliff, and you walk backwards off the cliff, but then you settle into the harness and the rope, and it's this pleasant journey down the cliff, except it's not so pleasant, you know, when in the transition. Your adrenaline is going, and the temptation <clears throat> is to get tunnel vision. You know what I mean by tunnel vision? It's when you have the, the fight or flight response uh, to danger, when your adrenaline is pumping and you just look at what's right in front of you and uh, block out everything else and your body 
wants to just get down that cliff as quickly as possible. So we had a guide. We were, we were crazy enough to take up rappelling at uh, the age of 60 or so, but we were smart enough to have a guide with us. And he, he said to me, you know, you're the kind of person when your adrenaline um, goes up, you want to do it faster. When your adrenaline count goes up, you tend to speed up. And he said, that's not good. Uh, that's how you make mistakes. So, do you see the connection to uh, vision in a time of transition? If you get tunnel vision, if you let your adrenaline push you, you make mistakes. So we were going down this one cliff. <clears throat> it was one of the 100 footers. And uh, I was down about 15, 20 feet, and, and the guide stuck his head over the edge of the cliff, and he said, wait a minute, I want to take your picture. Just stay there, don't move. And, uh, and then he started fumbling through his backpack, couldn't find his camera. And I knew what he was doing. He was trying to get me to, to look, look around to enjoy the view. And he finally took the picture, and I went down slowly. So when you're in a time of transition, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the time to renew and refresh your core vision. Is anybody here in a time of transition other than me? All right, so this is the time to renew and refresh your core vision, and it's the time to keep the vision wide. Don't let your vision narrow. Don't look at all the details and the threats and the scary stuff about the transition, but keep your vision big, keep it wide, keep it in view, and you will find your way through that transition. Now, one of the reasons I'm uh, stepping down as executive director is to, to devote more time to teaching and writing. And uh, as David mentioned, I'm, I've got a new book I'm working on. Uh, it's a book on the story of Joseph. And it's been in my personal uh, writing pipeline actually for a few years, and I want to get it out already. So I'm hoping to really devote myself to that after, uh, after October. And in the book, one of the most familiar and dramatic moments in the story of Joseph can uh, help us to renew and expand our vision and to avoid tunnel vision in the way that I'm talking about. So let's go there. It's the time when uh, Joseph is about to reveal himself to his brothers. I, I, I'm sure everybody knows the story of Joseph. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, the favored son. He's also the uh, second youngest son. He has 10 older brothers who do not appreciate the fact that their father, Jacob, is openly favoring Joseph. If, the, the, if they're good sons, they're going to support the choice of the father. But they resist it. They defy it. They sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They bring their father down into, into 20 years of mourning prior to this scene that we're opening with. But Joseph, the Lord is with him in Egypt. And again, you all know the story. He, it's an amazing story. He rises up to be uh, the second in command of the entire empire of Egypt. He's in charge of food distribution because he has accurately interpreted uh, dreams of Pharaoh that there's going to be a famine 
And he accurately gave Pharaoh the way to handle the famine. So Pharaoh said, okay, you're in charge. And uh, Joseph is second in command. He's in charge of food distribution. Eventually, Jacob's sons and Jacob's whole household uh, are starting to face starvation in this famine that has come. So they send, uh, the 10 brothers go down to uh, Egypt to buy food. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him because he uh, dresses like an Egyptian and he speaks Egyptian. And uh, they, it, it, they just can't, they don't see the resemblance to their brother. They rec- he recognizes them. He notices that the youngest brother, Benjamin, is not with them. And he develops a, a plan to test his brothers, which is a plan that will lead to the healing of the family. But uh, you'll have to read the whole book to see how all that works out. But in this scene, Joseph has told his brothers, uh, you can't come back for more food until you bring your younger brother that you told me about, because I think you're lying. And in fact, I think you're spies, and I'm going to keep one of your brothers in, in prison in the dungeon until you come back with this younger brother, uh, and then you can have your older brother released, and you can, you can buy food. And so they come back with Benjamin. It takes a long time for them to come back because Jacob, who favored Joseph, now favors Benjamin. He's lost Joseph, and now he says to his sons, now you're telling me Joseph is gone, and now you're telling me I need to send Benjamin with you to Egypt? Forget it. It takes a long time before Jacob is finally willing to send Benjamin And when he does, Joseph has him framed. He sets Benjamin up to look like he's a thief, and he he puts him in jail, or threatens to put him in jail. And at that moment, Judah steps forward. We're in Genesis 44, and Judah asks if he can uh, have a word with Joseph, and he pleads for the life, the freedom of Benjamin. He says... Verse 32, your servant has pledged himself for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, I shall stand guilty before my father forever. Therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. Let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father unless the boy is with me? Let me not be witness to the woe that would overtake my father. Now Judah's action here, Judah is the ancestor of Messiah. Judah is the ancestor of David and of Messiah, the son of David. And his action here uh, hints at the, the sacrificial work of Messiah Yeshua. Judah offers himself instead of the boy, tachat hana'ar in Hebrew. Tachat hana'ar, in place of the boy. And that, that's the same uh, language. It echoes the language in Genesis 22, the story of the binding of Isaac, where instead of uh, Isaac being killed, the Lord offers a ram, tachat beno, in place of his son. So just as the ram is a substitute for Isaac, so Judah offers himself as a substitute 
for Benjamin. And for us in the Messianic Jewish community, we see this as a, um, as a sign of the Messiah to come, Yeshua, who is the descendant of Judah, who offers himself tachat in place of us. So we tend to recount what Judah did in terms of what I call the Benjamin narrative. The Benjamin narrative. And in the Benjamin narrative, Benjamin is doomed. <clears throat> He's in bondage. He has no way to help himself. And his brother, Judah, offers himself in exchange for him. I was doomed. I was in bondage. I had no way to help myself. And Messiah Yeshua offered himself in exchange for me. That's the Benjamin narrative. And we, we see this uh, echo or this, this hint of Messiah to come in the act of Judah. But what stands out when we read the text itself in Genesis, when we read Judah's plea in Genesis 42, what stands out is he's not, he's not pleading, 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 with Joseph so much on behalf of Benjamin as he's pleading on behalf of his father, Jacob. His whole point, his whole emotional pull is not about Benjamin, it's about Jacob. How can I, how can I come back without Benjamin because I can't stand to see uh, the woe, the despair that that will bring to my father? That's the point of his appeal. He asks Joseph not to have mercy on Benjamin, but on Jacob. And Joseph's, Joseph's test, the reason he brings Benjamin down, he's not so interested in seeing what's the brother's attitude toward Benjamin. What he wants to see is what's the brother's attitude toward their father. Because it was really the, the rejection of the, fa the father's will, the father's favor, that triggered this whole story. In fact, the whole <coughs> Joseph's story is introduced back in Genesis 37, where the story begins. The introduction in Hebrew is Ele Toldot Yaakov. This, these are the, the generations, or this is the account of Jacob. In fact, it says, Ele Toldot Yaakov Yosef. These are the account, this is the account of, of Jacob, Joseph, and then it goes on and tells the story. But it's really Jacob's story. And Judah's appeal is a, an appeal for the father, for Jacob. So it's, Joseph's goal is not just to get Benjamin saved. Joseph's goal is the restoration of Jacob's whole family, the restoration of the whole house of Israel, of all Israel. That's his, that's his focus. And that restoration depends on the whole household honoring and supporting the, the choice of the father, Jacob. So in, in place of the, of the Benjamin narrative, it's the all Israel narrative. I'm not, I'm not negating the Benjamin narrative. Thank God for individual salvation. Thank God that Yeshua sprung me out of the dungeon and saved me. But God forbid that I should think the story ends there. 
are you the kind of congregation where they say amen? Is that in, in line with your sensitivities toward Jewish tradition where you could say amen? So thank God for, thank God for individual salvation, but God forbid that we should think it ends there. All right. I won't overdo that. So there's the Benjamin narrative and there's the all Israel narrative that, that includes the Benjamin narrative. The Benjamin narrative is part of the all Israel narrative and the all Israel narrative is the point of the story. The point of the story of, uh, of Joseph and I believe it's the point of the story that we're part of today, but we'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> so when Judah pleads on behalf of his father, remember it's not, it's not so much pleading on behalf of Benjamin, he's pleading on behalf of his father. When Judah makes that plea on behalf of his father, Joseph is so moved that he can't control himself any longer. And he dismisses all of his Egyptian attendants and he turns to his brothers and he says, Ani Yosef ha'od avichai, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? That's the point of the whole drama. And he knows, you know, literally, yeah, he knows his father is still alive. He's saying, is my, my father's really still alive? There's still ch uh, a chance for restoration? Ani Yosef ha'od avichai. Honoring and serving their father, Israel, will make the family, the house of Israel, whole again. So the Benjamin narrative is about the individual, but it's the all-Israel narrative that drives this story. The Benjamin narrative is about the individual, but it's the all-Israel all narrative that drives this story. And I believe that Messiah Yeshua himself, who is the, the descendant of Judah, uh, supports the all-Israel narrative. Yeah, he says that uh, he'd be willing to leave the 99 good sheep who are sitting here in, uh, in uh, Tikvat Israel on Shabbat morning and go find the one lost sheep to bring him back in. He, he loves the individual. He's after the lost Benjamins, the bound-up Benjamins. But there's a bigger narrative. Yeshua says, truly I tell you, in the re regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm enough uh, of a literalist to think that actually he meant what he said that the reason Yeshua picked 12 apostles was because there's 12 tribes of Israel and he is going to accomplish the all-Israel narrative that Yeshua the Messiah is sent to save all of us individual Benjamins who can't help ourselves, but it's part of this bigger picture of restoring the whole house of Israel. That the father, God, like the father Jacob, is not happy until his family the house of Israel is made whole. And it's only Messiah Yeshua through his sacrificial death, through his substitution, who can make all Israel whole again. Yeshua's follower, Rav Shaul, the apostle Paul, supports the all Israel narrative. He says in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. And again, 
I'm enough of a crazy literalist to think that when he says all Israel, he means all Israel. I know it's a very controversial interpretation, but there it is. Now remember though, the all Israel narrative uh, is actually even part of this greater narrative of universal salvation and redemption. So, so Paul says, if Israel's rejection meant reconciliation for the nations, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So the all-Israel narrative serves the universal purpose of God to restore all humankind through Messiah Yeshua. It's, it's like the Joseph story. You know, Joseph um, goes down to Egypt, becomes the... Uh, the second in command saves the nations from the famine in process of saving Israel. So he serves the all Israel narrative, but all the nations benefit as well. So the all Israel narrative is not um, a small narrative, but it's, it's a grand narrative. And when we frame the good news of Messiah Strictly within the Benjamin narrative, I believe that we play into the narcissism and the consumerism that characterize the age we live in. When we overemphasize, when we we present the gospel as if it's just all about me, we're actually playing into the spiritual narcissism that is rampant in our day. Now, I don't want to get too controversial. It's Shabbat, you know, time of peace. But I think the, the religious culture that we live in is, a, is, a pers- is an individual, a me-centered culture. And sometimes the gospel itself is distorted to support that narcissistic, consumerist, what's in it for me. And people try to sell the good news of Messiah as a what's in it for me product. So thank God for individual salvation, but God forbid that that individual salvation should cause me to depart from the wider story. As a Jew, thank God for my individual salvation in Messiah Yeshua, but God forbid that that individual salvation should should draw me away from my people, from the all Israel narrative. Instead, as a follower, as a Jewish follower of Messiah, when, I, when I'm saved by Yeshua, the good news of Messiah, that um, draws me in and strengthens my identity, my connection to my people. So the all-Israel narrative uh, insists that we remain part of Israel. I know we're not all Jewish here, and I'll, I'll deal with that in a second. Um, but I'm talking on a personal level, <clears throat> The Messianic Jewish community is not just a collection of redeemed individuals. The Messianic community is part of all Israel, part of a plan and a purpose that God has for the whole people of Israel, which ultimately is a plan for all the nations. So the all Israel narrative insists that we remain within Israel in solidarity with Israel, 
especially when we accept Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel. And I said, I'm saying that as a, Jew, as a Messianic Jew, as a, a Jewish uh, guy who accepted Yeshua, as, your, uh, as my introduction said, long ago in the mountains of northern New Mexico. But in Messianic congregations, we're also many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, but you're here because you're standing in solidarity and in love for Israel, which ultimately is a solidarity and love for the Father, who has a special favor for Israel and a special purpose that's going to be blessing for all the nations, and you're agreeing with and supporting that. So this is a vision I think that can sustain you through the rough waters of transition. Three implications, and then we'll wrap it up. The all-Israel narrative <clears throat> is the big why. It's the big why. Why are we a Messianic congregation? It's, it's the all-Israel narrative. Leaders change. October 1st, the UMJC is going to have a new executive director. That happens. Leaders change. You'll have, you, you're in the middle of a change of leadership as a congregation. Congregations change, but the big vision remains. The big vision is why you exist. You don't exist because of Rabbi X or Rabbi Y. The UMJC doesn't exist because of Executive Director X or Executive Director Y. We exist because we're serving this big vision of the restoration of all Israel. The Benjamin narrative of individual Jews coming to Yeshua belongs within the all-Israel narrative. So our congregations, we need to reach out to everybody, but we have a special place in our hearts and a special assignment from God to reach out to our own Jewish people with the good news of Messiah. But we're not just uh, racking up individual Jews to come to faith in Messiah. We're here to encourage, to support, to help them remain in solidarity and part of the all-Israel narrative. And, and we need both our Jewish members and our non-Jewish members to accomplish that. We need both, even though we have this, this Jewish focus and outreach, that requires everyone to participate. Right? Am I saying something scandalous and controversial, or is this part of your... All right, there we go. Okay, so the all-Israel narrative is the big why. Number two, there's no chopped liver in the all-Israel narrative. There's no chopped liver in the all-Israel narrative. What do I mean by that? Well, it's what I just talked about, that our, our, you know, we're always talking Jewish this and Jewish that, and yet all of our congregations uh, include essential key non-Jewish people in our membership. A lot of our congregations are, are, uh, have more non-Jews than Jews. And it's important to remember that even though we're emphasizing Jewish identity, Jewish outreach, there's no second-class citizenship that results from that. Because we're all together serving this same vision. We're all essential. And I think I've hinted at why uh, non-Jewish people are essential to the vision as well. But we need each other. And we need, we need the full community serving that vision. There's no second-class citizenship. Now, uh, by the way, uh, David mentioned that I'm a certified clinical mental health counselor. And uh, so when I'm writing about Joseph, I'm actually 
writing about the family drama of Joseph. I'm, I'm reading the story of Joseph from a family dynamics perspective. And um, I think as a family therapist that I've diagnosed that Joseph's brothers have a severe case of chopped liverhood. It's a technical, it's a technical uh, therapeutic term. They've got a bad case of chopped liverhood because when they see Joseph being elevated, they feel like chopped liver. And the whole story of Joseph hangs on them overcoming that sense of chopped liverhood so that they can support the father's favor. Jacob overdoes it. I mean, he's outrageous in his favoritism toward Joseph. And I think that's the point of the story. Look, if the brothers have to support Jacob, who really you know, shows blatant favoritism, how much more do the, do the nations need to join in the father's choice of Israel which is going to be for the benefit and the blessing of all nations. And how much more do we need in our community non-Jewish people who stand with their Jewish brothers and sisters and support and build and create this all-Israel narrative among us? So there's no chopped liver in the all-Israel narrative. <clears throat> and final point, you'll find your best part within the all-Israel narrative. In other words, thank God for the Benjamin narrative of individual salvation, but remember, it's best told and it's best lived out within the wider story of the all-Israel narrative. If you're part of the Messianic Jewish community, in the wider uh, Yeshua-believing community, it, the same principle applies. Thank God for individual salvation, but don't think it's all about you. It's about the, God's wider kingdom purposes for all humankind. And so you're best part is within this wider divine narrative. In our case, it's the all-Israel narrative, the salvation, restoration of the house of Israel. Otherwise, you're going to be prey to the uh, spiritual narcissism of our day, the me-centered expressions of worship and doctrine that abound all around us. And I believe that those will not sustain you will not sustain us in times of transition. And by the way, even if, if your life is very stable, if you're one of those people who didn't raise your hand when I said, you know, you're, maybe you're in a time of personal transition, if you live in the year 2016, you're in a time of heavy transition, period. You're in a time when it's easy to get this narrow tunnel vision and just hang on, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be all right, thank God, but I don't know about anything else. And it, this is the time to widen your vision, to keep the big vision. In the storm of transition, don't lose your vision. And then I, I uh, spoke on this uh, a few weeks ago, and it occurred to me that that kind of rhymes, or it's close enough, right? In the time of transition, don't lose your vision. So I'll turn it into a poem. Keep it big and wide, and it will be your guide. Amen. Thank you.